You know, manhood, I think, is, is, is in this state of confusion. And um, I'm going to begin with a story. A, a few days... A few days after the, the blood was drawn, a husband and wife were told that the lab results were in and they should go to the doctor's office. And uh, they've been there at that doctor's office a few times, more than a few times over the last year. And as they sat in the waiting room for a few anxious moments, the nurse asked the wife to come on in. And so uh, she told the husband just to sit there. The wife came into the doctor's private office and sat down, and, and the husband's been under a lot of stress, an incredible amount of stress over the last year, and he was suffering from a rare disease. And uh, so the woman, the wife, sat down at the doctor's office, and the doctor said, I've got some serious news to tell you, and unless you make some changes to your life, your husband's not going to make it. He won't, he won't live much longer. And, of course, that really upset her. And she began to cry. She said, what, what should I do? What can I do to help? And the doctor said, well, first of all, um, in the morning when he comes down the stairs getting ready for work, make sure you're, you're dressed for the day. You got your makeup on and your hair all done. It causes uh, a lot of, um, it de-stresses the whole situation. The doctor said, make sure you're smiling. Make sure you prepare a full, healthy breakfast for him. You have a morning newspaper and a cup of coffee. Coffee piece that probably decaf is going to be best. Maybe even tea will be better. And encourage him in his day. As he goes to work, just say, you're going to do great, honey. It's going to be a, a great day. And then when he comes home from work, be nice to him and smile. And uh, uh, don't talk about your problems at all. Um, but ask him how his day went. It's going to really help him with his stress. Make sure you... Uh, Prepare for him a four-course healthy dinner and uh, let him watch all his favorite TV shows. And um, he says, and be available to him at all times sexually. <laughs> she said, okay. And she thanked the doctor and she stoically walked out of the doctor's office into that waiting room. And the husband was looking at her like, well, you know, what? What happened? And she just followed her out to the parking lot, into the car. They got in the car. The husband got in the driver's seat. And he was anxious and he was confused, as, as men often are. He was confused by her silence. And, you know, he just couldn't take it anymore because it, it was just silent in the car. And he, he says, I, what did the doctor say? And she tenderly turned towards him and said, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to die. <laughs> he was really confused. I mean, he was, he was really confused. Manhood is in a state of confusion, I think, because I think we ask ourselves these questions like, what is a man? And what's manhood all about? And when did you become a man? That's a, that's a personal question. When did you, how did you know you became a man is a good question to ask all men. And when you ask about the vision that drives men today, there's a silence, I think, and there's an uncomfortable confusion. Garrison Keillor, who's a humorist, he says, manhood wants a virtue to be proud of. Now it seems like a problem that you need to overcome. And it, it really does seem like that, that when you talk to men today about how they would describe their gender, there's disconnected thoughts and feelings. And men want to kind of 
find a safe place to unload that, and, but they don't really have anyone to talk to about that. Because manhood is in this state of confusion, and confused men create major problems. And we see it in our, in our society today. Most of America's social problems lay at the feet of men. As 27 years in, the, in full-time ministry, I've found that when a couple comes and sits in my office and they want to talk about marriage problems, you can trace those problems usually to the man. You know that 90% of major crimes are committed by men. 99% of rapes are committed by men. 95% of burglaries, 91% of physical abuse, and 94% of DUIs are committed by men. Margaret Mead, an anthropologist, not a Christian, of course, and, but after a lifetime of research, she says this, the central problem of every society is to define an appropriate role for its men. Manhood used to be a noble pursuit now it seems like it's just a problem if you're a man that's a problem it seems well confused men settle for less when you're in a state of confusion and and you really don't know where to go with this you you sort of settle for less if you're confused dr rollo may a psychologist in his book man's search for himself he says the clearest picture of this empty life of the suburban man who gets up at the same hour every weekday morning and takes the same train to work in the city and performs the same tasks at the office, lunches at the same places, leaves the same tip for the waitress, comes home on the same train each night, spends a two-week vacation at the shore every summer, which he does not enjoy, goes to church but does not really know why he goes, and moves through a routine mechanical existence year after year until he finally retires at age 65 and very soon thereafter dies of heart failure, possibly brought on by repressed anger, though I always had the suspicion that he died, he died from boredom. This is conventional manhood or conventional masculinity that we read that Dr. Rollo May writes about. And it, the conventional manhood is you put your head down and you bear down and you work hard to carve your niche out in life. And you never Stop to think. I need to pull my head up and look at the landscape of what's happening around me and ask myself, what are the higher things that we're called to as men? What are the noble things of masculinity? Where did they go? What are the, what are the fulfilling things of being this gender? And what is my calling before God in this life? The Bible has a vision of manhood that's compelling to men today. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. As men, as, as our gender, the question for us is, what are we living for? What is it that we're living for? The Bible gives us a vision of manhood in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think it's not exclusively for men, but it says all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking. And this Scripture is useful for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are you allowing the Scriptures, the Bible, to equip you for your, for your life? And are you allowing the scriptures to equip you for your relationships, 
and for your work? Is that the guiding principle in your life? Because if you're confused, you don't need to be confused much longer. That's what we're going to be doing in these men's connection breakfasts is we're going to identify with the, from the scripture what manhood and masculinity needs to be so that we don't need to be confused much longer. That we would know where to go. That this conventional manhood of just putting your head down and working as hard as you can in the guise of providing for my family, which is a noble pursuit. But what is it that the scriptures say is going to define us in, in our gender. Today we're going to take a look a little bit deeper in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes, When I was a child, when I was a little boy, I, I talked like a boy, I thought like a boy, and I reasoned like a boy. But when I became a man, I put childish, boyish ways behind me. And I, and I want to ask, um, what does it mean to be a man? To you, what does it mean? Let's look at the scriptures today. Let's, what, how does a man act and what does a man do? And what does a man live for? And what is the compelling vision of manhood that it, it, it seems no man knows? John? So uh, Dean and I uh, want to use these times together to help you understand Scripture so that you understand life better and understand the role that God has assigned you in life. We don't want you to go away this morning, go home and tell your wives that John and Dean think uh, I'm confused about my masculinity. That would get you, that would, that would get, you know, although Dean and I are available afterwards to talk with those of you who are confused about your masculinity. So it, right in the middle of this very famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, you have this phrase, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And we want you to understand more fully what that means before we leave here this morning. For those of you who are careful students of Scripture, I need to issue a disclaimer. I hope all of you are careful students of Scripture. But in, in this passage, Paul is not talking about the progression from childhood to manhood per se. That phrase, when I became a man, I put away childish things, actually looks forward to what a Bible scholars call the eschaton, or the end time, the time when Christ returns and makes everything right. And, and Paul is saying, you Corinthian men who have spent so much time arguing about the use of spiritual gifts and who, who, who really are abusing spiritual gifts and misusing uh, spiritual gifts in that church there at Corinth, I want you to know that when Christ returns, you're not going to be arguing about it anymore because then you're going to be perfect. And in fact, when Christ returns, there's going to be no need for spiritual gifts and, and uh, their definition and, and their discussion because things will be perfect and, and you will be perfect. You will be complete. But I, I just wanted to issue that kind of interpretive disclaimer just in case some of you would go away and say, well, that's not really what that verse means. We're really using the verse as a launching pad to get you to think about the difference between childish things and manly things and to go further into this conversation about what what constitutes true manhood or what is uh, Christian masculinity. So I guess you could say we're ripping the verse out of context, but I've found over the years that as long as you tell people you're ripping it out of context, it's okay, just go ahead and rip it out of context. But I think we can go to this chapter, which is most often read at funerals and weddings. Do you realize that? I would say 
27.6% of all funerals include a reading from 1 Corinthians 13, and is it 87.6% of all weddings include a, a reading? It's if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, etc., etc. You probably could recite that along with me. But in this passage, you have a description of love which serves as a description of true, unconventional Christian manhood or manliness. And on your sheet there, you see a long list of things. All of those are from just a few verses in 1 Corinthians 13. To be manly or not childish looks like this. And I put a in there because it's really a long list and it's a list that any man reading and holding up to his life as a standard to be measured by is, is going to be a little bit taken aback because a lot is being asked. And these characteristics are stated both positively and negatively. Manliness means to be loving. Manliness means to be patient. Manliness means to be kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not easily angered, not a scorekeeper. Not a scorekeeper there is an interpretation of Paul's statement, keeps no score of wrongs. And I think in a general way it means a real man doesn't hold grudges. And how countercultural is that? I think manliness or manhood is defined in, in our culture quite often by being a guy who never forgets, a guy who gets even a guy who seeks revenge, but the word of, of God says that manliness is defined as not being a scorekeeper. I think scorekeeping is very damaging in our marriages. When you go through life trying to figure out who owes whom what in your marriage, you are damaging your marriage to a great degree, not a scorekeeper. See how I could pause for a couple of minutes on each one of these and I would violate our agreement for me not to speak more than seven minutes. Not delighting in evil but rejoicing with truth. That comes down to your, your conversation habits, your thought habits. It, are your thoughts and your words filled with, with gossip or critique of somebody else who has been caught doing evil? Godly manliness protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. So what kind of men does God want us to be? Girly men or burly men? Girly men or burly men? The thing is, a lot of these characteristics, both positive and negative, are often identified as feminine in nature. Uh, but they're, they're not in, in actuality. Girly men could be one extreme on a continuum, and burly men would be on the other extreme. A burly man is the John Wayne kind of figure. Conventional masculinity. Uh, did you ever hear speakers use the phrase, he's a real man's man? I used to hear that a lot when, when I was growing up. It always puzzled me. What is a man's man? You know, it, it bothered me because it's got kind of a homoerotic kind of feel to it. <laughs> when you stop to think about it, but we, we won't go there this morning. We'll just, just say, ooh, to that one and, and move on. A, a, a man's man. Well, the answer is neither girly men or burly men. And it's not something right in the middle, you know, with, a, with some admixture of girliness and burliness. It's, it's not even on that continuum. It is something entirely different. It is what Dean earlier called unconventional masculinity. 
It's unconventional because it doesn't follow the conventions, the form, the standard of this world, but it's men being called by God to a higher and wider view of their manliness that includes such uncommon things of not being easily angered and such uncommon things of not being boastful or being rude. Unconventional masculinity. And at its base, this unconventional man is described as the man who loves. The man who loves. And the man who lives. The man who loves and the man who lives as Christ loves and lives. That's what God wants us to be and God wants us to do. And this kind of manliness, of course, is more often caught than taught. Dean and I and Dave and Martin can prepare wonderful lessons for us all about Christian masculinity or being a man after God's own heart and all of that. But the truth of the matter is our sons and our grandsons and the boys that we interact with and influence are not going to be taught this manliness, this kind of manliness, so much as they're going to catch this manliness from us. We are all role models, whether we like it or not. You remember Charles Barkley taking a lot of heat years ago because he said in an interview, I am not a role model, and people just jumped all over Charles Barkley for for saying that. What do you mean? You're an NBA star, and and you're you're not a role model. And basically what Barkley was, was saying there, my good friend Chuck was saying there, is that that's not my God-appointed role in life, to be a role model for your kid or your neighbor's kid. That's your job. You're the role model. And I think he was really on to something. So among other things this morning, Dean and I are calling you to realize that you're a role model and manliness is going to be caught from you, for better or for worse, by the kids you influence. Their definitions of unconventional, Christian, godly manliness are going to be caught from the way you live with your wife or girlfriend. Choose one, not both. Your wife or your girlfriend. (laughs) How you interact with your neighbors, uh, how you regard your life's work, how you regard your involvement with the people of God, and so forth. It's caught more than than taught. Some of you know that uh, one of the things I do is teach in the doctoral program at Bethel University. And I've just come through a round of reading dissertations, which, you know, if you want to get bored out of your skull, join me some evening for four or five hours of reading a a dissertation. But one of the dissertations that I read uh, last week was written by a Hmong pastor. The Hmong are people who came to this country beginning in the 70s after the Vietnam War because the Hmong fought with the U.S. against the communists in Vietnam. And when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, they left a lot of Hmong soldiers there who were at the mercy of the communists who were taking over country. So the Hmong came to this country in the thousands. And this particular pastor is a Hmong who came here in the early 70s. And at this point, there are about 80,000 Hmong refugees uh, living in, in Minnesota, of all places. And why, that's, uh, that's another story we could get into some other, other time, why Minnesota. But he chose as his topic for his doctoral paper, single Hmong, single Hmong mothers raising boys. And his observation was that there are thousands 
of clueless young men in Minnesota because their mothers raised them on their own. Where were the fathers? The answer to that is many of the fathers were killed in Vietnam. And so you've got this whole generation of Hmong refugee young men growing up without adequate models of masculinity, and it's causing huge personal and social problems. And I, I, when I read that, I, th I thought, that's a good example or a, a good description of the fix we get into as a society when the men uh, either abdicate or are uh, in some way absented from their role as fathers and as uh, models of uh, this uh, unconventional, godly uh, masculinity. We found this week a, um, a video that, of all things, was about uh, elephants. And several years ago, 60 Minutes reported that on a South African uh, animal preserve, the young elephants were going nutso, absolutely running uh, crazy. They were actually raping and killing white rhinos. They killed and, or they raped and killed over 60 white rhinos. And, and they wondered, how are these rhinos dying? Why are these rhinos dying? And they traced it through camera surveillance to these young male elephants. And so the, the bigger question was, what's gone wrong? And then they discovered that years ago, they had pulled out of the elephant herd, a herd of elephants, they pulled out the males because the males had turned very aggressive toward tourists. They were turning over uh, Jeeps and uh, Land Rovers, uh, you know, charging them. So they, they called the herd and they took out a significant number of, of mature male elephants, leaving these immature male elephants to figure out elephant manhood on their own. And the cure for it was the world's largest Big Brother program. They brought back into the herd male elephants who knew how to act according to responsible uh, conventions of elephanthood, male elephanthood. Now my point is, God has called us to leave a legacy, to be always in the process of leaving a legacy for the boys who follow after us, the boys that are our kids and grandkids, and the boys who are our students, the boys that we have influence over, to always be leaving this legacy so that they grow up knowing what manhood looks like. So we've got some discussion questions for you, and they're on that sheet, back page, at the bottom. We want you to break into groups of three or four, and don't worry about choosing wisely who's going to be in your group. Nobody feel left out, but just form groups of three or four in, in a moment. And we want you to finish the statement, big boys don't. And then we want you to go on to talk about important models for you of what it means to be a man. And then we want you to get philosophical a bit and state your opinion as to why so many men these days seem to have a hard time growing up. And then we want you to deal with what being grown, grown up looks like in your own relationships, your personal relationships, first with God and then with your wife or girlfriend. And again, choose only one of those. And with other guys and with any children that you have influence over. So that's the assignment, okay? And we've got about 15 minutes to do this. 
Herb uh, snuck out a few minutes ago and put some cinnamon rolls in the, the oven, mini cinnamon rolls. So you can help yourself to one of those and uh, grab some more coffee while we're talking and just break into groups of three or four. You can stay around the tables or you can go out into the worship center and just have a good time. And then when time is up, Dean will let us know. And then we're dismissed. And we're looking for guys, as always, to stay around and help set up for worship. So thanks for coming this morning.